Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is episode two of the series covering the latest issue of the magazine, Made Perfect. Today we'll be speaking with Amy Murphy of Rehumanize International and then with Ross Douthat of the New York Times and author of a wonderful new book. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow Quarterly. And I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. This is the episode where we talk about how to be human, how to find out what's real, and how to suffer. Now we are happy to welcome Amy Murphy. Amy is the founder of Rehumanize International, a secular organization dedicated to creating a holistic culture of life. Amy, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here with y'all. So can you just sort of tell, tell our listeners who you are, what the work that you do is, and maybe a little bit about how you got to be doing it? Yeah. Uh, so I am the, the founder of Rehumanize International. Uh, I founded the organization as Life Matters Journal back in 2011, uh, before I was married, back when I was Amy Bedoy. (laughs) And uh, I really started the organization because I had just graduated from uh, my undergrad degree in ethics, history, and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. And while I was there, I had been the president of the pro-life club, Life Matters, for two years. And I was working part-time at an urgent care uh, healthcare facility. Uh, And I was like, oh, I can't be done doing human rights work just because I'm done being a student activist, just because I'm done with with my education. so what what can I do? And you know, when I was 16 years old, I had been in this on again, off again relationship with a guy, and um, after he raped me on Valentine's Day, um, a couple months later, when I thought I was pregnant, he threatened to kill me if I didn't have an abortion, and that moment so deeply unsettled me that I made it my goal to go and unsettle the rest of the world. So, you know, here I am, you know, working the front desk at, you know, a a little urgent care center and twiddling my thumbs basically in my free time going, okay, well, I still care about all of these different issues of human rights, but I have no outlet for that. So what can I do? And basically uh, I decided that there was a niche in the consistent life ethic movement that wasn't being filled, that we needed to be educating the next generation on this consistent philosophy of nonviolence, of human dignity and uh, you know, I, I asked some friends of mine in, uh, I think, like an atheist and agnostic pro-life group and then a LGBT pro-life group on Facebook. Hey, guys, like, I, I want to do something. I'm not sure what it is and what it's going to look like, but I think I want to start like a magazine or a journal or a conference. I don't know. What are your thoughts? <laughs> and... Uh, the, the guy who became the co-founder of the organization, uh, Nicholas Neal, 
he messaged me and that day, August 15th, 2011, we decided that we were going to start a magazine. It was going to be called Life Matters Journal. And we got started on the very first issue that day. We published our first issue, uh, I think only a month later in September. Um, and honestly, uh, the ball just kept rolling and picking up steam. Like it really was a, a sort of avalanche <laughs> sort of movement where other people saw the energy and uh, the consistency and the authenticity of our organization and really took that opportunity to allow the consistent life ethic to infuse their movements uh, with this deeply authentic care for the human person in all stages and all circumstances. Amy, could you break down for our listeners, what is the consistent life ethic? Is that a religious thing? Is that a philosophical thing? Um, what does it mean? And what's in and what's out? Yeah, so um, our understanding of the consistent life ethic at Rehumanize is a, a philosophical and even a secular understanding that each and every human being has the same inherent human dignity. Uh, that same inherent human dignity means that all of us are equal, uh, that all of us deserve to live free from all forms of aggressive violence. Um, so that means in opposition to, you know, forms of, of legal aggressive violence, like abortion, like war, like torture, police brutality, uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide, uh, embryo destruction, uh, like in embryonic stem cell research and like happens in IVF labs across the world. Um, but also, you know, other forms of abuse, trafficking and, uh, you know, systemic dehumanization that sort of seep their way into the culture and the laws of this world. Um, so at Rehumanize, we focus, we focus pretty exclusively uh, on those issues of legal violence, uh, legal aggressive violence. Uh, so generally uh, more on like war and the death penalty, abortion, embryo destruction, um, while still also acknowledging that even if we abolished all forms of aggressive violence in the law that there would still be work to do to uphold the dignity of every human being in the culture. Um, you know, that we would still have to work on ending, you know, dehumanizing poverty. We would still have to work on ending racism and sexism and ableism, et cetera. I'm interested in the fact that Rehumanize is a secular organization. You yourself, if I'm not mistaken, are pretty Catholic. Is that right? I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, however, when I became pro-life, uh, when I was 16 years old, I was an atheist. Um, and I was and still am openly queer. Um, and so when I started Rehumanize as Life Matters Journal 10 years ago, um, I was really adamant that I wanted it to be a space 
where people from all sorts of different backgrounds would feel comfortable working alongside each other for human dignity, for an end to violence. Um, really knowing that if we want to create a culture of life and a culture of peace, that we need everyone to be on board. We need everyone to believe that violence is contrary to human dignity. I often uh, use the analogy of the burning building, right? If, if, and I use this when talking usually to conservative pro-lifers who don't want to include atheist or LGBT pro-lifers in the movement. And I explained to them, you know, if we consider abortion, the killing of 800,000 children every year in this country, like a burning building. And you have a fire company that rolls up and, you know, like they're in charge of delegating firefighters to different parts of the building to put the fire out. And you have the fire chief who's standing there and he's standing there with a checklist. And he's like, okay, are you a conservative Christian? Are you straight? Okay, you can go in the building. And, it, but like, if you answer no, like, no, like I'm an atheist and I'm queer. And the fire chief's like, no, you get out of here. Like you would probably question the sanity of that fire chief. And you'd be like, what are you doing? right? Because there's a burning building here. There's children who we can save if we work together and you're sending people away. Like, why would you do that? So I wanted to make sure that this movement would be one where we have every human working for the dignity and life of every human. You know, ever since, uh, the conversation began around the current uh, Dobbs case before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, there's been, you know, of course, a lot of worry, especially on the pro-choice side, about uh, the outcome, which we don't know yet, uh, and also accusations of, of bad faith on the part of uh, the pro-life side when um, there's been arguments uh, for a more adequate social safety net for um, a sort of across the board uh, support for women and for children and families. Uh, have you encountered similar um, in advocating for a consistent life ethic? Because, you know, a consistent life ethic is represented by no constituency in American politics or the politics of, of, of most Western countries today. Yeah, politics is hard. I, I'm I almost said impossible. Um, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to navigate the current political landscape. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wearing my politics kills choose, choose life shirt that kind of explains in visual form that both of the major parties that we have today uh, really pick and choose which humans they support and which humans they throw under the bus. Um, you know, because on the right, yes, you, you know, you might have uh, these politicians that support ending abortion and support, you know, uh, ending euthanasia and assisted suicide, but at the same time have been supporting hawkish wars or have been dehumanizing 
these refugees and immigrants who are attempting to make a home here in the United States or have even been dehumanizing families that rely on the social safety nets like welfare, uh, you know, like SNAP or like uh, WIC, etc. Um, or, you know, disabled people. I have a friend who um, is an ardent pro-life activist who has been working in the movement since the 90s when she was a college student. And uh, she is pretty severely disabled and consistently when she goes into conservative pro-life spaces is harangued for being on disability and quote unquote relying on the government um, to support her when uh, you know the, the systems that exist right now are actually quite harmful uh, and impossible to extricate oneself from if you are disabled. Um, you know, if you make too much money, your benefits and your health care get taken away from you. Um, but if you don't make any money, you won't be able to afford even your Section 8 housing. Like there's a very uh, tight spot that a lot of disabled people are thrust into. And yet on the other side of the political aisle, you know, we have generally left-wing liberal uh, Democrats who, you know, might support these social welfare programs, might support disability, might support the rights of immigrants and refugees, uh, though the Biden administration has extended uh, Trump's stay in Mexico policy and made it even more harsh, so that's questionable. Um, but at the same time, they support the violence of abortion. You know, they support uh, this dehumanizing and ableist system of assisted suicide. Um, so we're really in this tricky place where we want to be supporting the human dignity of all in all stages and all circumstances, but the political options that we have are wholly insufficient. Uh, they're Honestly, uh, I don't. I don't know if I want to say malicious, but like, they're just completely missing the mark. Um, you know, by by being inconsistent and not supporting uh, this human dignity across the board. Um, I don't know if they answered your question. Well, I mean, I think it did, and I'm, but obviously you're in this and you're seeing things that encourage you. You're seeing the dial move some places. Could you talk a little bit about that? Where, 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 is, where is the forward movement from your, your, your point of view? So from the, the interest and the movement that we've seen from a lot of young people, um, I think the, the data shows us, you know, from Pew and Gallup polling that Millennials and even Zoomers uh, tend to be uh, less religiously inclined um, and more LGBT friendly, but also less politically affiliated, like less, less partisan affiliated. And I think what this points to is a desire for authenticity, a desire for consistency. Uh, when we look at 
uh, religious disaffiliation, I think what a lot of that points to is these young people who are sick and tired of being told one thing by religious authorities and being shown a completely different thing by the structures that exist. Um, and so they're, they're sick of that hypocrisy, that inconsistency, that inauthenticity. And the same thing goes for politicians, you know, who make promises out one side of their mouth and then do something completely different or respect humans in some cases, but not in others. Um, you know, there's this, again, this, this frustration with hypocrisy and inconsistency and inauthenticity. Um, at the same time, when we see a greater support for um, the LGBT community, for communities of color, I think what that is pointing to is a desire for the respect, value, and protection of human dignity. And so I think if we continue running in that direction with our whole selves authentically and consistently upholding human dignity, I think that, you know, there's nothing that can hold us back, that um, what these young people want is exactly what we are offering um, by upholding human dignity consistently in all stages and all circumstances. And this is something that I've seen on the ground. Uh, you know, when I've had conversations on college campuses, even at high schools, on the street with people, like while I'm holding a sign or handing out educational material, um, a lot of people will say, wow, I've never heard of this philosophy before. I've never heard of the consistent life ethic. This is so interesting to me. I didn't know this was a thing. You know, I have felt so alienated from partisan politics or my religion or whatever. Um, I guess I didn't recognize that this was a possibility. And that is always encouraging to me to see people discovering the consistent life ethic for themselves and recognizing that you don't have to pick and choose which humans you throw under the bus. You can authentically stand for human dignity for all. That's obviously, I mean, you are phrasing it in a secular, sort of in a secular milieu and using secular arguments, but it's obviously very flavored by and inspired by the, the Catholic idea of the seamless garment of life. Um, and I wonder, I don't actually know this part of your story. How did you get from secular pro-lifer to Catholic? What, what happened? Gosh, I mean, I went to college. Um, at the time, I was dating someone who was um, evangelical-ish. Um, and so I was learning more about Christianity from um, kind of like a Baptist, quote unquote, non-denominational perspective. Um, and I wasn't sure whether or not I was convinced about it. Um, so I was reading on, you know, like various different um, religious traditions because I felt like there was something bigger than me eventually. You know, like I got to this point where I was like, okay, I'm 
agnostic-ish, like I'm not sure what I actually believe in, but I'm pretty sure it's not nothing. Um, <laughs> and I got to college and um, I was attracted to the Catholic Newman Center. Like, and I, I was raised Catholic. Um, my parents weren't openly pro-life or anything, um, but it, it didn't seem super attractive to me when I was a rebellious bratty teenager. Um, <laughs> when I got to college though, um, and this is gonna sound super silly, um, the Newman Center had an event that said that they were going to go curling like the winter sport involving like Swiffers and rocks, right? And I was like, oh, heck yeah, I am into this. This is so cool. So cool. <laughs> and then a friend of mine in the architecture program mentioned to me that they have this thing called uh, perpetual adoration every Friday. And like, did I want to go with him and sign up for a time slot? And I was like, well, I don't know what that is, but like, I am down to do things with new people and try to make friends. <laughs> so I signed up for a time slot at Adoration and went and truth be told, I was like, this is Jesus. Like, I don't know if I believe in other things, but I believe this is Jesus and this is God. Um, and like learning more about the social teaching of the Catholic church, I was like, oh, they're also like consistent about human rights too. And like this aligns with my internal conscience about, you know, general like practices of nonviolence and upholding human dignity in general. Um, so I don't know, like a, a combination of factors, but yeah, curling and adoration. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> I mean, I had a similar experience of I was pro-life before I was Christian. And it, it's this weird, like, it feels like it be becoming pro-life kind of softened me up in some way. It was like, yeah. it was sort of like, it was one less hurdle to get over once I finally became Christian. But it was also kind of like, it's like when you see humanity for what it is, you kind of also start to see God for who he is in this weird backwards way. Mm -hmm. It's very strange. Um, yeah. you, so this is obviously for our disability issue. You've, um, tweeted a bit about your own sort of health issues and, and struggles with, um, fibromyalgia and, and so on. I wonder whether like the, whether you could talk about that with regard to the sort of discourse about like, you know, imperfect, like basically like the, the eugenicsy aspects of pro-choice stuff. So I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, um, I want to say like four or five years ago now. And um, I've been dealing with chronic pain since I was in my early 20s, um, but like didn't have a diagnosis for it for a long time because in case you didn't know, the medical system sucks. Uh, yeah in this country um, and honestly like around the world when it comes to believing women about what they say about how they're feeling and their bodies etc um 
So the more that I have attempted to come to terms with my own disability um, and need for things like mobility aids, um, the need to step down as executive director from Rehumanize uh, this past year and move into a part-time role uh, because of my chronic illness, um, the more I have really tried to dive deeper within the disability movement. Also understanding that it's not something that I am native to. Um, you know, like I wasn't born with a disability. Um, you know, despite being born uh, six weeks premature, I was born happy and healthy and totally fine. Um, and so there is a difference, I guess, about like coming to it as a young adult than coming to it, um, you know, straight away, you know, like in the womb or, you know, at birth being diagnosed with a disability, like some of my friends who have spina bifida or uh, cystic fibrosis or um, cerebral palsy, for example. Um, so I do just like want to acknowledge like there is that difference. Um, at the same time, uh, there is an interesting, I mean, opportunity, I guess I would say, as both someone who exists in disability rights spaces and in uh, pro-life spaces to be countering this very harmful and eugenic idea that we're only valuable based on what we're able to do or uh, you know what actions we're able to perform in order to serve some uh, usually utilitarian purpose. Um, I actually had a discussion online this week um, with someone else who is disabled and has a chronic pain condition. And their argument was um, extremely eugenic. And there were several of, of us who were involved in uh, disability justice spaces who were talking with this person and trying to tell them, you know, like our lives matter, even if we exist in a state of chronic pain. Um, that our lives have dignity and worth, uh, even if nobody knew us, even if we didn't have a social history. Um, but it was fascinating in, in one of those ways where like, you're watching like the most terrible car crash and you're like, oh my gosh, I hope everyone's okay. But like, how in the world did that happen? It was, it was fascinating in the most horrific way that this disabled person was basically saying, I hate my life because of my chronic pain and therefore I want to die. And therefore I should not have been born. In fact, my parents deciding to not have an abortion and not kill me in the womb is an act of harm and an act of trauma against me. Um, in fact, they even use the word an act of violence. Um, and of course, there were several of us who were explaining, um, 
you know, like, yes, like your chronic pain is terrible and we should be doing more within the medical sphere to offer palliative care and to offer, um, you know, nonviolent solutions to the pain that you are experiencing. But ultimately, uh, to allow a person with a disability to exist is not an act of violence. It is the promotion of our inherent human dignity. And, you know, that there's, there's no level of ability, no, no threshold that we have to cross in order to retain our dignity as human beings, because it is a quality that's inherent to us. It's, it's part of just our existence, our being, our essence is that we are a member, a living member of the species Homo sapiens. And so, you know, we therefore deserve to live free from violence and abortion functions through intentional starvation or dismemberment or poisoning of that prenatal human. And that is an act of violence. Allowing someone to live and to make their own path is not an act of violence. Um, and this is something that comes up very often in discussions of filicide and then euthanasia and assisted suicide as well. Um, and it's, it's interesting how when it comes to those issues, um, disability justice organizations are more likely to speak out and say, you know, like, filicide is wrong. A caregiver killing a disabled dependent because they pose a quote-unquote burden uh, is dehumanizing. It's harmful. It's violence. Um, but when it comes to violence in the womb, um, a lot of these disability justice organizations tend to be more left aligned and so are more comfortable with the violence of abortion, um, even if they are somewhat squeamish about the idea of disability selective abortion. But these eugenic practices really harken back to these dehumanizing experiments that were waged on disabled individuals uh, under the Nazi regime in, in Germany, uh, but also even further back in the United States there have been and even continue to be uh, eugenic sterilizations and sometimes even experimentation and killing of disabled individuals um, because of the quote unquote burden that they presented to their parents, their families, um, communities and caregivers. Um, and that really represents a it's, I, I can't even put it into words, just, just how harmful and ableist a standard that sets for today um, when, you know, the ADA still isn't even properly practiced, when we're faced with an opioid epidemic that ends up treating disabled patients who have severe chronic pain as addicts, um, when by and large they are not. Um, you know, it, it results in 
not only these uh, eugenic abortion practices, but also the the common idea that to have a disability is to be less worthy of life and care, which then translates into uh, a push for assisted suicide for those of us who have intractable pain or have terminal illnesses. Um, the thing I always like to say is uh, the human existence is terminal. All of us <laughs> are going to die at some point. Um, the question is how and under what circumstances and um, violence just doesn't, it doesn't stack up against our human dignity. Um, I, I do think that there is an underlying positive idea, uh, you know, a good intention underneath a lot of um, this idea of quote unquote death with dignity, um, that people don't want others to exist in pain, right? And this is what the, you know, the, the person on Twitter that I was arguing with was getting at is that um, a, an existence uh, that is just steeped in pain and suffering um, can also be uh, you know, harmful that, and, and this I, I can speak from my own personal experience that um, intractable chronic pain that lasts for days grates on you. And there are some days when I just think to myself, I wish that I could stop existing. I wish that I could step outside of time and space and just rest and not have to be in pain. And so I, I do think there is a need to address that issue of pain, but that the answer that responds to human dignity in a holistic way is not that of violence. It's not killing, it's not harm. Um, it is palliative care, it is um, accompaniment, it is compassion, um, but it's not violence. That is a profoundly, I think, hopeful and hospitable message. And I thank you so much for, for your time. And um, I'm just really grateful for the work that you do and for, to you for taking the time to talk about this and for being willing to share your own experience as well. Um, I, just to let you know, I, you know, obviously all the time I run into people saying, you know, the pro-life movement only seems to care about people, um, you know, care about babies before they're born or the pro-life movement is hypocritical. And partly because I've kind of been involved in more the, you know, the areas of the pro-life movement that I feel like you represent, I just, that's just not been my experience. And I am, I don't know, thank you for the work that you've been doing and thank you for what you've helped to build in the last 10 years. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> I'm always grateful to hear um, that the work that we're doing is actually making an impact. Um, and I personally am hopeful that the future of the pro-life movement is, is going to upend the uh, you know, conservative 
white, cisgender, straight, Christian trope. Um, and, you know, that, that, that unfeeling, distanced um, bootstraps ideology and understand that um, if we want to build a culture of life, that mutual aid and solidarity and community are going to be the cornerstones of, of that culture. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I'm hopeful for, for the, the road that lies ahead of us. I think if we can build that community, um, then we can be entrenched in hope instead of despair and instead of, um, you know, this alienation and dehumanization and violence. Thank you again. And I'll catch you on Twitter. Well, we're delighted to welcome back to the Plowcast, Ross Douthat, the New York Times columnist, author of many books, uh, including most recently, uh, The Deep Places, a memoir of illness and discovery, which we're going to be talking about today. And of course, uh, he contributed a beautiful essay to our latest issue on disability and ability that is adapted from that book called Hide and Seek with Providence, Suffering from Intractable Lyme Disease, I Look for Meaning and Fear to Find It. So I'm not sure if that's a uh, editor-supplied uh, tagline is a good uh, kind of summary of the book, but you'd certainly write in your book about suffering from intractable long-term Lyme disease um, and that whole journey. Uh, most of the time, you write as a, a pundit, uh, looking at things from the outside, and in this book, uh, you tell a story that happened kind of literally on, on the inside. How did it kind of feel working your way into a book like this, Ross? It was uh, a beautiful book and, and some of the best writing that, you know, I've seen for a long time. Well, that's, that's incredibly kind. Uh, and, and thank you so much, obviously, for, for having me back. Um, I mean, I, I would, it's sort of an odd thing to say about a book where the story is, uh, you know, sort of, I think harrowing is a fair word for, for some of the material in the book. Uh, but as a writing experience, I really enjoyed it. Um, and some of that was probably just a certain kind of catharsis. It's a very strange thing to have this kind of public-facing identity as a writer for years and years and also have this sort of thing that's an all-consuming part of your life, which is to say not just the experience of illness itself, but all of the sort of controversies and arguments and, you know, sort of material stuff around it and not ever write about it. And I always intended to write about it at some point, uh, but I tried to sort of keep it out of my writing for the most part for a long period of time. So probably there was some relief to finally to finally do it, to finally write about it. But also, you know, most, as you said, most of my work is punditry. Uh, I'm not going to say that punditry is the lowest form of writing, but I don't think it's the highest form. And at the very least, it was just nice to do a kind of writing where you could put in you know, a paragraph of description of the New England countryside and, you know, not feel like you were wasting wasting the reader's time. So to the extent that the book has sort of 
literary pretensions, pursuing those pretensions was a enjoyable part of writing it, I would say. And there's a very nice piece of New England countryside at the very end of the little excerpt we ran in Plow uh, on the main coast, which I can recommend. But could you give uh, just the quick version of the story in the book uh, for listeners who should hasten out and get themselves a copy if they haven't already? They, they, should, they should rush, uh, but if on the off chance they haven't yet. So, so this is a book about basically how my wife and I, with then our two kids, she was pregnant with our third, uh, tried to buy or did buy our dream house in a somewhat rural part of Connecticut in 2015 after living for many years in Washington, D.C., and we had this whole plan uh, to sort of live there in the countryside and raise chickens and have stone walls and be outdoors all the time and escape from the pressure and corruption of the big city, uh, all of these kind of bucolic fantasies. And instead of living them out, we lived out a kind of Stephen King story where I became very, very ill while we were actually still in Washington, D.C., we had bought the house, done the home inspection, but we had several months before we were actually moving. And I had just a totally bizarre illness, pain all over my body, insomnia, weird tingling and, you know, phantom heart attacks, trips to the emergency room, all of these things. No doctor in D.C. could figure out what was wrong with me. And it was only when we moved to Connecticut and started seeing doctors up there that it became clear that I almost certainly had Lyme disease, which is the famous sort of northeastern scourge carried by deer ticks. And so at that point, the story, it sort of starts as a medical mystery, but then it enters into the realm of medical controversy because there's a huge, furious, multi-decade argument about how to treat long-term Lyme disease, what to do for people who get sick and don't get better after a short course of antibiotics. And I didn't get better after a short course of antibiotics, so I sort of had to enter into that controversy, try to figure it out intellectually, but then sort of more practically figure out how to survive and over the long run get better um, while sort of living you know, both physically in the country and sort of, you know, off the map of modern medicine or sort of official medicine, you might say. Um, so that's that's sort of a sketch, I think, of what the book is about. You know, one, one piece of that, that, of course, um, you know, a lot of people, I think, can relate to is uh, what makes a story credible? What makes a person's account of their experiences believable? Uh, before your, you know, and you, you, you tell about it in, in the book, um, before you kind of knew what was going on, um, the, the word that would kind of rapidly spring to a lot of people's mind is, you know, psychosomatic, um, you know, it's all in your head. Uh, this is what many people are told. I mean, one of my siblings, you know, had a condition like this for years and, and, the advice from everyone was, um, we can't see anything. Um, there's nothing there. Um, after the book comes out, a certain number of the reviews have repeated the same line, right? Um, we've read the whole book. It's a beautifully written book. Um, harrowing, obviously the man suffered. Um, we're still not quite sure, you know, if there was really a thing there. Uh, how does that make you think about what 
makes a story believable? What makes somebody else's story believable? Well, I think there's a there the challenge with an experience like this, right, is that in trying to convey it, there's a inevitably a certain tension between being maximally persuasive and maximally honest. <laughs> so, you know, the book like th there is a version of this narrative that would spend you know probably more time than I do in the book on the scientific controversy around Lyme disease, the sort of competing medical schools of thought, and the research and papers and analysis that you can sort of sit and read, as I have sat and read, if you're trying to figure out whether it is likely that Lyme disease persists um, and persists and can be treated by antibiotics or, or anything else, right? Um, and, you know, that part of the story, I think, sort of taken on its own, while it's not going to persuade everyone, I think it is fundamentally persuasive. I, I think the basic idea that, you know, the Lyme bacteria persists in people's bodies, it, you know, a lot of blood tests miss it. People with Lyme disease also get other infections from deer ticks that make it harder to treat. And lots of people do get better if you do these really complicated long-term antibiotic protocols. All of that is just true. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, they're obviously, it's not true in the sense of being universally accepted, but it is in fact correct. And I think it's correct in a way that a totally disinterested person who sat down and read six books and 20 papers on the subject should be convinced by. Um, at the same time, the experience of being sick, right, with something like this is, you know, it's an experience where you yourself are plagued with self-doubt and uncertainty because you're being told you don't have a real illness. The illness inevitably has psychological consequences that then feed back into the physical and you're trying to disentangle the two. Um, you know, so there's sort of the, the basic burden of self-doubt, but then also you do crazy things when you're sick like this, right? Like you don't, I, I did the sort of basic thing that people do for long-term Lyme disease of seeing these doctors who will give you combinations of antibiotics and doing that for months and years. And that was, I think, crucial to my slow recovery. But I also had, you know, chiropractors put magnets on my body. I bought a machine that generates sound frequencies that are supposed to shatter bacteria inside your body. I had, you know, that was a rare, that was a rare funny section of your book, right? Right. <laughs> there was there's comedy there, right? And you know, and the excerpt that appears in Plow is focused on the slightly more mystical things that happened. Um, not sort of miraculous, but sort of, you know, tinged by providence, you could say, in ways that a strictly materialist account would tend to discount. Um, so in order to be honest about an experience like this, you, you have to talk about that stuff, because it's not, this is not unique to me. Anyone who has this kind of long-term, you know, you can't seem to get better situation is going to try a lot of weird things and have a lot of weird and unexpected experiences. Um, and so, well, yeah, I think one of the challenges as a writer is figuring out, 
how do you strike that balance between being as persuasive as possible on this sort of core scientific question and being as truthful as possible about all the weirder stuff that that you did? And, you know, obviously, um, you know, I think I, you know, was probably persuasive to some readers and the balance was less persuasive to others. And you can see that, I think, in in some of the reviews. Um, I think there's also a sense of like the you know, there, there's a certain kind of reader, I think, who, who just doesn't sort of, you know, um, who, who probably thinks it's in my head, but isn't going to come out and say it, right? <laughs> like, there's also, you know, there's a, once you've written a book like this, there's a certain sense of like, well, we like Ross, he's obviously been through a lot, you know, we're not, we're not gonna, we're gonna be respectful, we're not gonna sort of be too explicit about, about our doubt. So I'm sure there's some of that out there in the, in the response to, um, but, but I did decide early on in the writing to try and make it as honest a memoir as I reasonably could, knowing that, you know, the sort of strict persuasiveness of the book would at least at the margin diminish, I think, for a truly skeptical, a reader who just doesn't believe in this chronic illness stuff at all. It's your experience and sort of seems to invite, um, and you almost sort of endorse that uh, sort of reading um almost a mythological reading of of what happened to you and it seems to me that there's something interesting about like what that might say about how reality actually is because so like you could sort of like read the you know chapter seven the big weird chapter and think okay this this means that this is all this is more likely to be psychosomatic or this is more likely to be like over like an overwrought imagination sort of phenomenon but the other way to read that is like the world actually is kind of a mythological place like we we are living in a world where you know deer ticks and the resurrection of jesus and living out a nathaniel hawthorne style story all like the fit the the actual material reality of a deer tick might also intersect with living out a kind of intergenerational um archetypal saga um, that, that actually, I don't know, does that ring true to you at all? Yes. I mean, that's what I think. Right. And so that's, you know, that's sort of apparent in the book. And it's something that I thought intellectually going into this experience, since I was already a religious person who had, a, you know, a, some, a somewhat mythological view of the construction of reality. Right. So again, the skeptical reader can look at that and say, well, of course, Ross Douthat, Roman Catholic, is, you know, not just sort of looking for signs for sort of hints of providence in his day-to-day experience, but also, um, you know, sort of interpreting his own story so that it fits in with these kind of patterns of hubris and punishment and, and, and so on and so forth, right? And, you know, that's that's all perfectly fair. At the same time, like once you're when you're inside that kind of story and that is actually what seems to be happening, you, it's sort of hard to escape, right? Like we really did buy this house as this sort of both a kind of culmination of um, sort of secular ambitions where, you know, I had gotten this dream job as a New York Times columnist and my wife had, uh, you know, sort of her family had fallen on hard times living in this town in Connecticut. But now, you know, we had money and we were going to return in triumph and buy a big house there. So we, we really did have this sort of 
somewhat hubristic, you know, we are masters of our own fate vision that really did run aground on this illness that is like this sort of Stephen King style secret hiding behind <laughs> the bushes in one of the most prosperous parts of the country. Like all, all of that really happened. And then, yeah, these sort of weird things where, you know, I found the bump on my neck that I'm pretty sure was the remains of the tick bite literally in the same five minute window when my wife came into our bedroom carrying the positive pregnancy test for the birth of our third child, right? Like, you know, those kind of synchronicities were real. They just happened. And, you know, they're open to various interpretations and they can certainly be interpreted through a disenchanted lens. Um, but the, the substance, the sort of sort of archetypal, you know, family patterns repeating themselves, all of these kind of things uh, are just part of the story. They're just part of what actually happened to us. Before we get a little more into that, I'd just be interested, uh, and, you know, we've th this sort of question raises itself, um, on the hard science side, right? The, the, not the experiential side, but um, just the experience of being kind of forced to become your own investigator into the realities of, of Lyme disease, and especially the varieties of it that aren't seen by um, medical establishment science. How did that kind of research project that you were forced into, how, how does that inform or how has that changed how you think about the big uh, medical establishment story of right now, which is obviously the pandemic um, and trying to think through uh, what is the reality of the pandemic, you know, truly, right? Um, yeah, how, how, how did that, how did that, uh, how did that journey kind of change not just your trust right but also just the way you think about science and how it works yeah i mean the first you know the first thing it does is give you a really clear sense of the difference between science as an investigative method and science as a sort of official bureaucratic system um because you know again while there is sort of lots of weird stuff in the world of Lyme disease treatment. And, um, you know, I, you know, I did a lot of weird and fringy things. The core theory of chronic Lyme disease is deeply scientific. It, the people who are invested in it are doctors and researchers. They have, you know, experiments, sometimes incredibly fascinatingly designed experiments and research programs behind them. Um, and the claim that they are making is not, you know, it's not a sort of weird supernatural claim. It's a really basic and simple claim that, you know, if someone has a disease and you treat it and the symptoms persist, you should continue treating it. Right? Like this is not, this is not, you know, a sort of outlandish or outre claim. Um, so encountering that and sort of seeing this sort of outsider faction as a group that, was doing real science and seemingly getting real answers and yet was unable to sort of translate their work into the realm of sort of official centers for disease control, medical best practices consensus. I think, yeah, it, it tells you something really important about how 
um, sort of scientific systems, the systems that we put up, you know, for good reasons in certain ways to sort of safeguard and, you know, protect patients from quacks and wild theories and risky procedures, that that kind of system can also sort of throttle or prevent real research, real science from happening. Um, So that's, that's sort of the, the basic, the sort of the most basic insight that I took away from this experience, right? That real science and official science are not the same thing. And then, of course, you know, as applied to COVID, you, you've seen this reality play out in a much more accelerated and public fashion than you see it play out in these sort of intractable long-term chronic Ill- illness debates, right? Where, you know, you will have official science make some kind of authoritative statement about a fast-developing sort of sort of pandemic situation that then has to be walked back or revised very, very quickly in spite of the sort of confident authority with which with which it's offered. Um, and, you know, you've, you've seen this from the beginning, whether it's the World Health Organization or the CDC or anyone else, just sort of this gap between not, it's not so much the gap between pronouncements that are wrong and realities that disprove them. It's the gap between the confidence with which things are asserted, the sense that like medical authority is something that has to be wielded in, you know, in order to, to show the plebeians that the scientists know what they're doing. And the fact that, you know, again, in a fast developing situation, the scientists are just not going to know what they're doing until more data and more research comes in. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of, I think, case studies in that throughout the pandemic. Um, at the same time, like, I also, I think the pandemic has made me very aware that, uh, you know, just because, just, just because the system gets things wrong and outsiders get things right, doesn't mean that the outsiders are always right. And you can always trust the outsiders, right? Like, I think a lot of the outsider treatments for, COVID that have been promoted don't have strong evidence behind them. Um, and I think s- at least some of the critiques of the vaccines and vaccination uh, also don't have strong evidence behind them, right? And I think there you can end up in this kind of dynamic where once you've had this sort of disillusioning experience with the medical system, you assume thereafter that the system must be wrong. And if someone's outside the system, they must be more trustworthy. And in fact, there has to be some kind of balance that you can strike where you say, look, official science can err and you need to be constantly aware that it can err. Um, but it is going to f- get some important things right. And you need to be ready to accept that it's getting them right and not just sort of default to skepticism in every controversy. Yeah, I mean, that, that this, this question of believability, you know, I, I have in-laws in the Dakotas who are horrified that our family is vaccinated, right? <laughs> Um, they can't believe that we would buy into the propaganda. <laughs> yep. You are very easily propagandized. Fred. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm an easy one. Yeah. Um, one of the sort of really vivid things that you talk about actually right at the beginning of the book is the experience of like getting up in the morning, um, you know, in pain immediately and getting immediately onto Twitter. And one of the, (laughs) which is a really cursed kind of situation. Um, But one of the things that, you know, you do do sort of repeat in the book is the sense of like the, the distance between your actual embodied experience and the way that like we all project ourselves as fully healthy, 
fully rational, big, basically disembodied, um, you know, members of the chattering classes. Um, can you talk a little bit about like if there's there seems to be like something a little bit healthy about realizing that you're not disembodied? Yeah, I mean, I would say my experience with the internet during this illness was in, in, extremely complex um, because there was a there was a layer of um, a layer of yeah this sort of awareness of the f fundamental dishonesty involved in a curated self, right? That like whether it's, you know, it takes different forms, whether you're on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or, you know, wherever, but the act of curation involved in presenting yourself online is somehow different and I think somewhat more dishonest even than the, you know, ordinary curation in which we, you know, the when we put on clothes in the morning and go out and act normally in society, right? And, you know, I could just see, I could just see in my, just in my own, my own habits just in person I just when I was really sick I put more of that out there I couldn't help it I I was you know in if you ran into me when I was at my worst and we talked for more than a few minutes it would come out that I was sick like that that would just sort of be part of my presentation sometimes in you know sort of over the top and embarrassing ways uh and it wasn't part of my presentation on social media and I think that's generally true people you know people don't always know how to sort of present their own sickness in normal flesh and blood interpersonal relations, but they project it more honestly than they do on online and social media. And I mean, often people who are really sick just sort of disappear from, from those worlds. So it's like curation to an extreme, right? The self just sort of evaporates from those worlds when they're sick. Um, and that experience fed into, I think, a lot of pre-existing beliefs that I had about, you know, what's wrong with the internet, right? And what's good about embodied existence, even though in this case, what was important about my embodied existence was that it was a living hell and totally miserable. Um, at the same time, there, the complexity, you know, first, the internet was also really, really important to my recovery, in the sense that I don't know, there was all kinds of research and reading I did all kinds of ideas that I found and connections that I made that just wouldn't have been possible if I hadn't got if I had gotten sick in 1977 or something. Um, and so you have to sort of, you know, having this, you, you sort of hold in balance, right? This sense of like, well, you know, the dark side of the internet reveals itself through this experience of disease, but the possible benefits of the internet also reveal themselves. And then somewhere in between is this reality that I still deal with today when I, you know, I'm, I'm like 90 to 95% better, but I still have bad times and bad days and so on. Um, and one reason I would start the day by diving into Twitter is that it would take me away from my pain a little bit. That was one way of dealing with the pain to sort of go into a world of abstract argument rather than a world of enfleshed existence. And that was not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be embodied and away from, you know, I mean, that was why we'd moved to the country. It was why we were getting out of, you know, getting out of this sort of pundit world and I was supposed to be getting away from my screens and so on. But, uh, you know, but the screens did also help me manage my 
pain in various ways that were probably important and helpful. Um, so anyway, that's a sort of rambling, <laughs> rambling thoughts on, on the meaning of the internet under these sort of conditions of physical suffering. In the, in the, uh, plow, plow piece and, and much more in depth in your book, uh, you, you talk about how, although you'd grown up in a very religious family, um, wandering through uh, various forms of American Christianity. Um, you'd never yourself sort of had, you know, mystical experiences or a sort of a, a sense of direct connection to, um, you know, this, the spiritual world. Um, what, what about this sickness was actually helpful? You know, w- you write about the sense that there was, it was important to see a, a purpose in it. Um, how would you describe the purpose in, in the suffering that you describe in this book? Did you ever come to an answer on that or more just a sense that yeah, there was a purpose, I, even though you yeah. couldn't quite put your finger on it? I mean, I, there's, I mean, you do end up with a certain kind of circularity in thinking about suffering, right? Where in part, I mean, I think the obvious thing that I've experienced even more since publishing the book is that you develop a different, a wider and different kind of sympathy for and understanding for what other people go through, right? And so that that's not really an answer to why suffering exists in the world at large. But once, <laughs> once suffering does exist in the world at large, suffering yourself helps you understand the world and other people better. And I think ideally helps you help other people. I mean, I, I think I... I wrote this book for many reasons, but one reason was that I thought there was value in telling a story like this for the many, many other people who go through these kinds of things. And it's the kind of book I wish that, you know, I had had to read as terrifying (laughs) as it would have been maybe when I was, you know, when I was sick or at my sickest and sort of, you know, didn't have any sense of, of how I would actually get better. Um, But so, yeah, so, so that, that, purpose, I think, as, you know, sort of translating this kind of experience into something that helps you understand other people and helps other people in some in some way does seem like one sort of obvious thing that this kind of suffering can be for. Um, and then, you know, I, I mean, it does changes you internally and I don't want to overstate that because you know life is life is a journey and you know there are parts of yourself that just sort of stay the same even through or or sort of are still there waiting for you as you come out the other side of an illness um but and and you know when you're at your sickest some of your faults are just inevitably exaggerated so it's not suffering the experience itself so put it this way sorry this is sort of fragmented right but I whatever I in my case whatever I feel like I've gained from the experience I've only been able to really gain because I've gotten substantially better and I don't know that I would be able to say you know if I were still as sick as I was six years ago right now I don't know if I would be able to have a conversation or say, honestly, you know, 
here are here are good things that I've drawn from this. Um, and so, you know, maybe that is like what true sainthood is, is being able to draw good and become a better person without the, <laughs> without the suffering being lifted. Um, but in my case, the experience of fighting for my life and health, gradually getting better, was sort of essentially interwoven with any kind of personal, psychological, or moral benefit that I took from the suffering itself. I liked your comment that, um, you know, uh, Jesse Ventura accuses uh, Christianity of, of being a crutch uh, for people in trouble, and uh, just the avowal that faith as a crutch is, can actually be a pretty uh, good and important thing. Yes. Uh, crutches I, aren't, aren't all bad. No, you. Ne- I mean, look, you, you, people who are dismissive about crutches are people who've never broken a leg, right? Like, and... Apply apply that logic to metaphorical crutches and other life situations, and what Ventura is describing is a case for religion, not a case maybe that that religion is true one way or another, um, but a case for why being religious can be incredibly important to surviving and thriving under the difficult conditions that basically every human being faces at some point or another. This is sort of... um in the more just because i kind of want to hear what what you say to this based on everything you've experienced over the course of you know what you wrote about what is the most um exotic or strange thing that you think might be true about reality that you didn't think was true before or like what's the weirdest thing that you think might actually be the case well, I mean, the just based on this experience alone, right? Not, not general, not general <laughs> widening. I mean, I, I think, I think there's sort of two uh, sort of separate things here, right? Like, so I'm Roman Catholic. I believe, you know, as a doctrine of the faith in the communion of saints and the power of intercessory prayer. So that's something I believed in before, but. This illness was the first time in my life when I had actual experiences that gave any evidence that that might be true. Like, true, not just in sort of a vague, like, you know, say some Hail Marys kind of way, but in a, like, very specific ask a particular saint or even someone who has died and might be in heaven for some kind of help and seem to receive something in return. Um so that's not a shift in my intellectual view of the world, per se, but it's it's a shift to go from a sort of highly intellectualized conception of how that, you know, that relationship between heaven and earth might work and actually, like, asking your departed great-grandfather to intercede for you, right? So there, that's, that's one kind of shift. Um, I mean, then, you know, the, I mean, the thing I, I mentioned it earlier, but the, the thing that I've, in the sort of more scientific, in, in the place where science and pseudoscience blur into one another, um, the thing that I did to treat myself that was most effective be outside of the normal antibiotic realm was this thing called the Rife machine that generates these sound frequencies that 
are supposed to shatter bacteria, but also we're supposed to do a lot of other things. You know, when you buy a Rife machine and it's named for this inventor from the 1940s who came up with the idea, you get this large book of frequencies that are supposed to treat everything under the sun. Um, and I can't tell you that the Rife machine treats everything under the sun, uh, but I, I do think that it has real physical effects on a wide range of things um, and um, in ways that, you know, I, I don't think there are sort of these quasi-scientific explanations. I don't think they're sort of fully theorized, um, and I'm not going to claim that they are, but just based on just based off personal experience, I'm really sure that there's something really interesting there that is currently outside of, you know, sort of the official theories of uh, of how the world works. And again, not completely outside. You can find papers on, you know, the effects of sound frequencies on bacteria in goat meat and <laughs> the effects of electromagnetism on this and that. It's not, you know, it's it's not... There are people studying these things, but they are way outside the realm of what any, you know, any normal doctor or scientist would uh, think of as sort of constituent parts of reality. And I had literally barely heard of anything like this before I got sick. And now I, yeah, it's it's the weirdest thing that I'm quite sure is, uh, you know, ha has some reality behind it. So describe, how does this actually work? You take this machine and you apply it to some part of your body and you dial it up? So there's a bunch of versions of it. Um, there are versions that people, I was literally talking to someone just the other day who had a version that you sleep with um, and it's touching your body while you sleep and sort of running and generating these frequencies, um, audio frequencies, um, radio frequencies, um, there, there's a version I saw the other day that I, I don't know if it was, <laughs> wasn't available or I hadn't heard of it when I was doing this, but it's like a wristband that you just wear and sort of run these things throughout the day. The version that I have, uh, is more sort of 80s science fiction. Like it's a box, um, you know, smaller than a slightly bulkier, but you know, the size of a really small laptop. Um, and you have two sort of metal tubes that you hold in your hands and, um, you know, and then you run, you run the box while holding the tubes and you turn on, yeah, you turn on any one of thousands and thousands of frequencies, um, are the, the listeners can't see this, but, but you can, this is one of the tubes, uh, I'm doing this in the attic so I can show you it's actually broken off. Um, but. Yeah, so that's so you stand in my case you stand by this box holding these holding these tubes one in each hand um and you run the frequencies and I think most people who use it uh get sort of reactions somewhat delayed after using it. I would get very quick and weird reactions that again were very very similar indeed identical to the reactions that I got from taking antibiotics when I was symptomatic. Um, and again, to return to where this conversation began, in describing this experience, I am, I think, you know, inherently undercutting the credibility of the more strictly scientific or 
you know, non-fringe claims that I'm making about Lyme disease. Um, but it's also true. So there you go. Well, I, th- I, I found that actually uh, a compelling part of the book, because, of course, if you're desperately ill, you're willing to try virtually everything, right? And that that's actually a very reasonable response. Well, you wanted to go for the Rife machine. I, I kind of wanted to get Ross to tell the story about the intercessory prayer. Yeah, so, I mean, you pray a lot when you're really sick. The praying... You know, I've never been very good at prayer in the way that you're supposed to be <laughs> good at prayer. Um, but when I got sick, my prayer basically just became this sort of pattern of desperate begging. Uh, that was sort of the, the the sum of it. And I, you know, I, I never, nothing ever happened when I prayed to the extent that there were things that sort of had a touch of providence about them. They were things like the story that you can read in the latest issue of Plow, which I won't I won't recount here because you should pick up the magazine, but was not a sort of, um, yeah, well, it, it was sort of a response to a desperate prayer, I guess you could say. But but the the um, the thing it was you know several years into the illness, and I had just gone to confession. And how should I describe this? The, the background of all of this is that when you have a infection like Lyme disease, and this is also true of some other bacterial infections like syphilis, if you treat it and basically kill off a bunch of bacteria in your body, you get this reaction that is called the Yerish-Herxheimer reaction, which is named for a couple of 19th century German doctors who observed it in their patients. Where And it is different for different people. Some people get flu-like symptoms. Some people get, you know, sort of hives-like reactions. And as with everything about these illnesses, it's not 100% clear why this happens, but it does happen. And this was sort of just a commonplace for me at a certain point. If I took the right antibiotic doses when I was sick, I got these really strong reactions where I needed to sort of rub my body and move my body, sort of jerk my body around. Um, Not involuntary exactly, but it was like, you're going to feel, you know, you, you feel this sense of relief if you're sort of rubbing at your shoulder, um, that, that kind of thing. And so that was sort of, you know, part of, part of the, the treatment. And it was just sort of an understood thing that if I was taking a new course of antibiotics, I would get these reactions. Anyway, with that backdrop, uh, at one point, several years into the illness, I went to confession, which uh, I also, you know, go to less less than I should, but I went to con- confession and I was saying my doing my penance afterward and I realized that I hadn't sort of asked for intercession or help particularly recently because I'd been doing somewhat better. And so naturally my prayer life fell away a little bit. And so I asked the Virgin Mary for help. Um, and I very, very quickly got one of these bizarre Turksheimer-style reactions there in the church uh, and had to sort of crawl over to the stairs leading to the choir loft in order to avoid making a spectacle of myself as I rubbed at all the joints and muscle groups where I have had symptoms over the years. Um, And this was sort of the most extreme example, but thereafter, for a certain period of time, this would happen when, and, you know, there were various saints, my namesakes, uh, and, you know, some 
some family connections, some, you know, yeah, some, some, various, some various people uh, in the community, you might say, who I could ask for help and I would seem to get some kind of physical reaction. And sometimes it would be very mild and it would be something where you could say, oh, you're, you know, you're very clearly just sort of imagining it because you expect it and then you focus on that part of your body. And sometimes it would be strong enough that that didn't seem like an adequate explanation. Um, and and this was not, I say this in the book, but this was not a mystical experience as I understand mystical experiences. It didn't sort of, you know, it wasn't this sort of feeling of oneness with the universe or, you know, the veil of reality being torn. It was incredibly physicalized and was just like these physical experiences that I got from taking strong antibiotics. Um, and it didn't cure me. It felt more like sort of, you know, a helpful hand along the path to the extent that it felt like anything. Um, and again, you know, it's it's if you are inclined to see chronic illness as psychosomatic, then having this kind of account in the story is validation for, for that view. But if you're a Christian, or, you know, particularly a Catholic Christian with all our, all our saints and angels, it's a different kind of validation. Well, they're not only your saints and angels, Ross. No, I, oh. with that, I, I, I'm not. <laughs> there's no, no chauvinism here. I'm just trying to be, you know, deferential to differing theologies of, of, uh, of intercessory prayer. Well, thank you, Ross, and, and thank you for... Um, joining us today. And I, you know, in terms of what your book has accomplished, I know of several people whom it's encouraged greatly, because I think the the biggest, you know, enemy uh, for many people in this situation is to feel uh, that not only am I suffering, but I'm also crazy. And, uh, and uh, so it's a really good book. Uh, listeners, please check it and out. And that's, I mean, one, that's really, really good to hear. And that, I think, you know, when, when you write something like this, in certain ways, you have to accept that that is the primary benefit of writing something like this, that yes, there may be some skeptics who are convinced by my account. Um, and there may be some of my readers who used to think I was a serious person and now think otherwise. But but either way, the primary beneficiaries are people who are touched by this kind of experience. And I, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, yeah, I hope that's the case. I'm glad that, you know, if you know people for whom that's been the case. I was also thinking in terms of the, the overall theme of, of disability and ability, which we deal with in this issue and have several other um, articles dealing with it, you know, um, two of them jump out. One of them actually is a story uh, by Victoria Reynolds, former, who we had on a previous episode of this uh, podcast, Mary's Song, where she speaks of her own experience of, of asking for um, the Virgin Mary's help. Um, she has a lifelong disability, and the importance for them of telling what it's actually like to live um, in a body that is always suffering, um, and w probably always will be suffering in, in their earthly lives. Um, and yet to see life as something precious and, and actually um, in, in an odd way, uh, be all the more thankful for, for living in this world, right? Um, so uh, there was a kind of, there was a great kind of uh, overlap, overlap yeah. here between Chiming. your piece and those. 
Yeah. Well, last time um, on, on a completely different topic, um, last time we talked on this podcast, Ross, um, we spoke about UFOs and the good people, um, whether they're possibly the same. And um, you kind of left us all nervous that merely by, by discussing, discussing them, them um, we would all be punished in some horrible way. Um, were, was there any kind of retribution um, extracted on you after that conversation? Or not, were, not, were not, not that, that, not that I noticed. Not that I noticed. No, but, but let's let's not let's not tempt fate fate twice. I it think. could still be coming. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Ross, and uh, we'll see you later. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or your app of choice and rate us as well. Tune in next week for a conversation with Notre Dame professor Carter Sneed about his book, What It Means to Be Human, and with J.D. Flynn, co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Catholic news site The Pillar, and the father of two children with Down syndrome.